to start in Daniel chapter 1. Um, if you want to follow along, the page numbers are up there. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded the palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them to a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years, so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among, among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abnego. Uh, but, but Daniel resolved that he would uh, not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king. He has appointed your food and your drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would, uh, you would, you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and wine and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke to them. And among them all, uh, no one found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Az Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year, first year of King Cyrus. And then the second reading is from Colossians chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word, that we may declare the mystery of Christ, for which I am in prison, so that I may reveal it clear, clearly as I should. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. 
Well, good evening. It's good to be with you here tonight. My name's Angus. I'm one of the ministers here. If I haven't met you, uh, just let me add my welcome to the welcome that Richard gave earlier, uh, especially if you're visiting or new here tonight. We are really glad that you've joined us here at church. Uh, as you said, we're in a four-week long teaching series on gracious witness that we've called Sent. Uh, this is week three. Two weeks ago, we saw from Matthew 28 and John 20 that Christians have been sent into the world by the Lord Jesus to make disciples. This sending follows the logic of the gospel. Jesus says in John chapter 20 that as the Father has sent him, that is, as God has sent Jesus into the world in order to seek and save the lost, so he sends us in order to proclaim the name of Jesus and make known that salvation to the ends of the earth. And so, right from the beginning, one of the things that we were learning was that the gospel always comes to us to then go through us to others. The gospel always comes to us to go through us to others. And then last week, week two, we said that this takes courage. Gracious witness takes courage because as much as this is a message of God's gracious love for the world, it's also a message that declares that people are strangers from God, cut off from Him and living in ways that dishonor the one who made them. It's the kind of message, quite honestly, that our culture would prefer us to keep to ourselves. And so it takes courage. We saw last week that this kind of courage only comes as you grow in confidence of who you have become in Christ, a child of the one true living God. Someone for whom Christ died. A person who doesn't need to fear the things that other people fear because God himself is your hope. And so as the uh, Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, we can be the kind of people who are ready to make our defense to anyone who demands from us an accounting of the hope that is in us. But that raises another question. What exactly does gracious witness look like? What does it look like in practice? Or to keep with the vaguely alliterative theme that we've been running in this series, what's the content of gracious witness? And that's what we're looking at tonight. In the preface to a recent book by the Australian evangelist Sam Chan, it's a book that's on the bookstall out there if you want to read it, it's called Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Uh, the preface to that, which was written by an American writer and thinker, Don Carson, he writes this, 50 or 60 years ago, most Christians in the Western world who chose to be involved in evangelism were trying to win people to Christ who already enjoyed some knowledge of the Bible. People who, culturally speaking, were not too dissimilar to themselves. 
the barriers of communication did not seem insuperable. Of course, we all recognize that what was needed was a work of the Spirit of God. It is impossible to simply talk people into the kingdom. But most of the time, it seemed as if we were, if not on the same page, at least in the same country and talking the same language. He goes on to say, all of this has changed. For a start, owing it not, not, not least to worldwide immigration patterns, most of our cities are hives of racial and cultural diversity, including many people from places that provided little or no instruction in the Bible or the Christian faith. Meanwhile, rising biblical illiteracy characterizes the majority of people in the West. The assumptions of the current form of secularism dictate that every individual enjoys not only the right, but the obligation to choose their own path and identity. It is ugly and foolish to submit to self-proclaimed authorities and those authorities that try to tell you who you are and what you must do, whether religious, traditional or governmental, are narrow-minded, corrupt and intolerant. This means, he says, that most of the themes that tie the Bible together have little resonance in our world. On top of this, in almost every case, the limited religious vocabulary of the contemporary West means something a little different from what these words mean in the Bible. Words like faith, spiritual, truth, salvation, conversion. 75 years ago, he says, questions like, where will you spend eternity? And did you know that Jesus died to save sinners? might not have been welcomed, but they weren't displaced in the culture with questions like, what gender am I, and what is better for me, Netflix or Amazon Prime? He concludes what is a long quotation here from this preface. The result of these changes is that it often feels as if Christians who share their faith and the people with whom they are sharing live in different worlds. And so as we get going tonight on this topic of the content of Gracious Witness, I just want to ask you, do you feel that? Do you feel that displacement? That sense of the God, if you're a Christian, whom you believe and who you want to share with people just doesn't make sense in the culture in which we live, in a culture where choices feel just like preferences, where the thought of God feels like a preference, Doritos or kettle chips, Sydney or Melbourne, Apple or Android, the Christian God or no God. And maybe if you're uh, not a believer, you're not a, someone who would call yourself a Christian, but you're here because you're just thinking about the Christian story, you're just trying to understand it a little bit better have you had moments as you've investigated where you felt like i don't know this language doesn't i don't, I don't get what they're talking about i don't get how this is real to my life well thankfully in many respects the first century world into which the apostle paul was writing is more similar to ours than we might imagine when it comes to the place of Christianity in the culture and people's knowledge about the God of the Bible, it's probably closer to our context than the world of the mid-20th century. 
And so, what we're going to do this evening is we're going to open up Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, and see if we can get some insight from Paul about what it might look like in practice to be a gracious witness to the Lord Jesus. And as we do that, we're going to see some simple truths that hold today as much as they did when the church was born. And I'll summarize it like this. The content of gracious witness is the gospel directed by prayer, displayed in conduct, and declared in speech. The content of gracious witness is the gospel, directed by prayer, displayed in conduct, and declared in speech. And those three points there will make up our three points as we go through. So if you've closed your Bible, you might like to open up to Colossians chapter 4 and meet me in verse 2. Our first point is that the content of gracious witness is the gospel directed by prayer. The Apostle Paul begins what really are very practical instructions at this point near the end of his letter in a somewhat surprising way. When we think of witnessing to the Lord Jesus, we usually think of gospel summaries or skillful answers to the difficult and complex objections that people have or asking perceptive questions that get beneath the surface and expose the things that really make us tick. And Paul will come to what we say in just a few verses. But right here at the beginning, he begins with prayer. Actually, it's stronger than just an instruction to pray. He calls the Christians in Colossae to be devoted to prayer. Look at verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. Be persistent in prayer. Don't give up on prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. In particular, Paul goes on to say in verses 3 and 4 that we're to be devoted to prayer for gospel opportunities. We're to let our desire to see friends, colleagues or family know God express itself in prayer. And this makes sense when you think about it, we're to pray persistently because God is the one who does the spiritual work of enabling a person to realize that they need saving. And that means praying does two things. Number one, it demonstrates a dependence on God, which feels especially necessary in a culture that thinks that it's grown up from Christianity and can't quite understand why anyone would take it seriously. And two, it calls on God to do what He loves to do, to save people. That's a point that Paul makes in another letter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, there he writes, first of all, and he's got through the introduction of his letter at 1 Timothy through chapter 1, and then he comes to the main body of his letter in chapter 2, and he says, first of all, of first importance, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, which just basically means all kinds of prayers, be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Why? This is right, he says, and is acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour. And here's the reason or explanation, because 
He desires everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We start with prayer because God is the one who desires people to be saved. It's God's mission that we join in, not our own mission. To be honest, I found this pretty personally challenging this week. Because if I'm honest with myself, I don't pray as much as I should for opportunities to share the gospel or for people to come to faith. Sometimes I don't have the bandwidth, sometimes I don't have the intentionality, sometimes I don't have the patience, and yet, as I know many others have found, my own experience has been that when I do pray for opportunities, God regularly provides an answer. Because God loves to answer prayers that have to do with seeing Jesus glorified in our witness. I didn't say this this morning, but we had a, a prayer meeting just a couple of months back for the new congregation at Haberfield, uh, where we were praying in the room, in small groups, for people in our lives that we would like to have opportunities to share the gospel with. And one of the guys there, a guy who's at the 10 a.m. congregation, and I was in the group praying with him, prayed for a couple by name. Uh, this was on the Monday night, and on Sunday, I saw them at church. And I thought to myself, what is going on here? And he said, oh yeah, we prayed for them, and then during the week, I had a conversation with them, and they said, oh, we'd like to come to church with you this weekend. Because God really does answer prayers. He loves to see Jesus glorified. And so, this week, I stopped to pray for someone who I knew had an opportunity for gracious witness. I prayed also for renewed spiritual curiosity for a non-Christian friend of mine who I've known for many years but tend to now forget in prayer. I prayed for a bigger heart that beats with the compassion of Jesus for those who he says in Matthew 9 are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And maybe you want to do that too. Notice how convinced Paul is in these verses that God can answer prayer in spite of our circumstances. In verse 3, he asked the Colossians to pray for him that God would open a door for the Word. And yet the crazy thing is, he's in prison. He's behind a closed door, as it were, and yet he's asking that they'll pray that even as he's in prison, a door would be open for the Word. Because he knows that God can work in spite of circumstances. And so I, I want to ask the question, do you feel like you're in a season right now where gracious witness is difficult? where you feel like you don't have significant relationships with the other students you study with at university or with your colleagues at work? Do you feel your family's especially hostile to hearing about Jesus right now? Or you wouldn't know where to start if the opportunity arose? The place to start is prayer. Even if you feel like you're not able to do much in the way of testifying to Jesus right now, what you can do is pray. Because prayer is no less a work of gracious witness than preaching or giving a testimony. To quote John Dixon, who's 
just got a great book on this topic. Prayer is perhaps the most basic dimension of promoting the gospel. And so, pray. Pray not just for the people that you want to see come to faith, but also for those in your life, the people you know who seem to be having opportunities to share the gospel. Pray for gospel partners. Pray for the people in your fellowship group who just seem to stumble in these, into these conversations all the time. Graciously witnessing to the Lord Jesus includes being devoted to prayer. But that's not all. We uh, move through the passage and we see the second thing. The content of gracious witness is the gospel displayed in our conduct. See, we live in a culture that craves authenticity. On the whole, Sydney Siders, increasingly so in younger generations, care less about the question, is it true, and more about the question, is it real in our lives? I think that's true of my generation. And plenty of you are of a generation younger again. We want to know if it works. Facts can be debated, rational proofs can be undermined, but here's the thing, you can't argue with a changed life. And so Paul, writing to this context where Christians were on the margins in a much more influential Greco-Roman culture gets the importance of displaying a changed life. He tells the believers in verse 5, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. He knows that the thing that will spark opportunities for everyday believers is the kind of distinctive, authentic changed by the gospel life that makes people take notice and ask questions. And he wants us to feel the importance, even the urgency, of not wasting those opportunities. The phrase, making the most of the time, literally translates, buying up the time. It's a marketplace expression, and it's getting at the idea of seizing every opportunity, of not being asleep to the potentials of doing good to people outside the Christian community or of behaving in distinctive countercultural ways. Now, it doesn't specify exactly what this will look like. He just says, do it. But the reason he does that, I think, is because it's going to need to look different in different contexts. That's why we're going to need wisdom. Walk in wisdom or conduct yourselves wisely. Wisdom is the capacity to figure out how the new life of Jesus, the life that's taken hold of you and is changing you, should play out in your relationships and circumstances. Last week, Andrew talked about the idea of soft difference. And that's the kind of idea that this is getting at. It means neither retreating into the Christian bubble, safe from the world, but ineffective for mission, nor, on the other hand, acquiescing to the world, making it impossible to stand out as a people who've been changed by encountering Jesus. You can think of uh, 
numerous examples of what this might look like. The person who doesn't participate in the toxic culture in the office, the toxic culture of criticism, uh, but who deliberately chooses to encourage others, even potentially in gentle ways, pointing out the unproductive effects of so much negativity and encouraging others to be more positive as well. Maybe for the elderly person whose body is weary from aging and who knows that before long the Lord will call him or her home, or the person who's been suddenly and unexpectedly hit with a devastating illness and yet who chooses not to grumble or be bitter about circumstances, but instead to uses the opportunity to testify to the hope that they have. We talked last week, Andrew shared the example of the single Christian, the person who chooses celibacy over getting involved in sex outside of marriage, and how heroic that can be as an example to our culture, you could also add as another example, because even the people who get married can do this, the couple who chooses to get married not having lived with each other for five or six years, not getting married because they're at the point where they want to have children and they think we should get married before we have kids, but actually chooses to covenant before the Lord at an age or at a stage of their lives where none of their friends are yet getting married. Those kinds of moments, those places are examples of living distinctive lives. Of course, the thing about authenticity is it can't be faked, otherwise it wouldn't be authentic. And so it doesn't work to just do it in order to impress other people to just do it in order to create opportunities for outreach. No, this is something that you've got to do first before God. Who is your audience as you live a life of authentic following Jesus? Number one, it starts with living it before God, the one who sees how you live, the one who honours those who seek to be faithful to Him, But then, as a consequence, it starts to work its way out and we see, you you start to see opportunities because of this distinctive displaying of the gospel in life. And this shouldn't be surprising. It shouldn't surprise us that this creates opportunities. In a world where authenticity is king, The believability of our message will depend significantly on the lives of the messengers. We're a component of how the message is communicated. Or as the phrase goes, the medium is the message. The content of Gracious Witness is displaying the gospel in our context conduct. But then there's a third thing, and here we get to the point which is perhaps the most obvious when we're thinking about gracious witness. The content of gracious witness is the gospel declared in speech. Uh, This is what we think about when we think about the words evangelism, witness, testimony, mission, those sorts of things. Gracious witness means proclaiming the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
And Paul says this of his own ministry in verse 3. He wants a door opened. He's asking for prayer that a door may be opened for the word that he and Timothy may declare the mystery of Christ. And mystery just refers to Jesus himself, God's plan of salvation that's been hidden up until a certain point, but now revealed so that everyone might understand it, including the people to whom Paul must reveal it clearly, verse 4. But here's the thing, Paul doesn't just think that speaking of Jesus is for apostles and pastors. He elevates the conversation of ordinary believers to the level of missionary activity. We're called to live a life uh, that demands gospel explanations. And when we have the opportunities to give Jesus as the answer for why we live the way we do. Look at what he says in verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. Seasoned with salt uh, may mean that believers' speech is to be winsome or interesting. That's a way that it was often used, that kind of an expression in the ancient world. But it may well be also just another way of saying it should be gracious speech. That is, the grace that we've been given in Jesus is meant to characterize the way Christians go about speaking. It's meant to be salty speech, speech that is seasoned with grace. At the very least, this means that the manner in which Christians speak matters to our witness. We're meant to speak graciously, not harshly or condescendingly or arrogantly. We remember that people notice whether we use our words to cut others down or build them up. But it may go further than this. Paul might be saying that we need to become gospel-fluent people. And I suspect that he is saying something like this, although he wouldn't have used those words. Gospel fluency is what it sounds like. It's learning to interpret reality through the truth and story of the gospel. So that you begin to think, feel and perceive your circumstances in light of what has been accomplished in Christ. You begin to interpret career through the lens of the gospel. Family through the lens of the gospel. Relationships Sex, status, success, property, politics, the plot lines and false gospels of TV shows and films, the list goes on. And what happens as you become more aware of how the gospel story intersects with your story is that you become a person who's able to let the gospel seep out in ordinary conversation. Uh, it's a few years old now, but at the 2016 Olympics, I reckon you can use Olympic stories until the next Olympics has happened, right? So I'm, I'm good for another 12 months. Um, the 2016 Olympics, uh, two uh, Rio Olympics, two American divers, David Boudia and Steele Johnson, won the silver medal in the men's synchronized diving. And after the event, they were interviewed on NBC, a national American television network, and one of the questions they were asked is how they were able to remain so composed under pressure. And one of them responded, 
the fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the result of this competition is just gave me peace. It gave me ease and it let me enjoy the contest. If something went great, I was happy. If something didn't go great, I could still find joy. Now, I think that's a pretty remarkable answer. In the world of elite sport, where most competitors take a view of themselves not dissimilar to the British sprinter Harold Abrahams at the beginning of the 20th century, which was made famous in this old film you won't have seen, Chariots of Fire, he says, I've got 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. That's the kind of mentality that many in the elite sporting world have. But in this kind of world, rather than letting success be his master and failure his greatest fear, Steele Johnson could speak to a better story. An identity in Christ that means that winning or losing doesn't have to be everything. And at least in this area of his life, the young diver had gospel fluency. Now, notice that what this isn't is a full-blown uh, gospel presentation. This is not a two-ways-to-live summary or a God's World course outline. These can, of course, be helpful resources. They're good things, and they're especially useful if you need help to understand the key aspects of the story. But, if we're being real, in most of the contents in which we find ourselves, having the opportunity to speak we don't get a 20-minute blank slate with a captive audience. We get 30 seconds here. Maybe four minutes there. And the challenge is to have immersed yourself in the gospel enough that when a brief opportunity arises, you feel confident to take it. Just as a little aside point, if you think to yourself, I don't feel confident doing that, and I'd like to grow in that, then, I mean, you can grow in that by reading books or listening to sermons. Those are good things. But I suspect, actually, the fastest way you grow in gospel fluency, just like the fastest way you grow in any language, is to immerse yourself in the language and culture where that's been spoken. And that, actually, I think means to start speaking your story and the gospel story together, to start telling the story of what is happening in your life in the lens of God's bigger story for the world in the context of your Christian relationships. To become practiced at that, to just get good at that, to be able to speak it in one or two lines here and there so it doesn't feel so mechanical and unnatural. One of the things this means as well, though, is that you won't always tell the gospel the same way. If the only tool you have is a hammer, then every spiritual conversation will look like a nail. But some people need to hear in them, their circumstances a different angle of the gospel story. A person who's lost a loved one and is wrestling with the finality of death may need the hope that Jesus' resurrection brings to life a hope for life that is not finally extinguished by death. A person who can't say no to people 
including unreasonable demands from their colleagues or family members, may need the truth that God's love for them is not based on their performance or people-pleasing, but on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And because of that, no amount of people-pleasing can make God love us more, and no amount of failure can make God love us less. In Jesus, we can be set free from the need to find our value in what others think of us. Because we already have the approval of the one who created us. And a person who is wrestling with shame, perhaps shame for things that they've done or even shame for things done to them, may need to hear that Jesus Christ experienced the shame of being spat on and mocked, crucified between two criminals and rejected by His Heavenly Father, so that we might not be ashamed before the one who knows everything that we have done and hears every secret thought. Instead, in Christ, we can be honoured as a child of the one true living God. You see what's going on here? It's taking the same gospel story, but putting a, a different angle of, on it, looking at the mountain from a different point, a different vantage point, in order to speak truth that is relevant to the situation in which we find our friends or neighbours or whoever it is with whom we are seeking to bring the light of Christ. And one of the things that means is that you just have to get good at listening to people. That actually part of speaking well in gracious witness is the ability to listen to others' stories. To find the ways where the gospel might meet them. And of course, our hope every time is that a well-timed word might open up a substantial conversation about Christian faith and an interest in checking out church, maybe even a moment of conversion. But sometimes, of course, it will just be planting a seed. Planting a seed in the hope that in time, God will cause it to take root and grow. And so, there we have it. The content of gracious witness, as Paul outlines it here in Colossians 4, is the gospel of Jesus. But it's the gospel directed in prayer for opportunities, displayed in daily conduct. And then when that conduct brings about opportunities, declared in thoughtful speech. Let's pray. Father, we are...